Hello, welcome to Wellness Spring. Today I'm blessed to be with a fabulous friend, Gavin Sharp, who is a UK qualified psychotherapist, sex therapist, and a relationship expert. We've been blessed here in Monaco and along the Côte d'Azur that he's been doing a series of various talks in each of those areas and he's spoken at my ladies lunch, the Be Here Now ladies luncheon and at an event for me in Nice and at various places he's very high in demand so we're blessed he's given up some time to talk today. The topic we will focus on is addiction. So welcome Gavin. Thank you very much and it's, uh, it's fantastic to be here and to be with you Beverly. Thank you and I know you have come from a very interesting background working initially in the corporate world and subsequently as a therapist. Please tell us about your journey into this field. With pleasure. So probably an unconventional journey. I started life as, uh, as a lawyer. I think my parents wanted me to have a, uh, a serious job, you know, become a, a lawyer or a, a doctor. And it was probably a, an expectation to become that, which is funny because I think years later as a therapist, I see the impact that parental expectations has on us and how we define ourselves. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a failure because I'm not a doctor like my father or I was supposed to go to Eton like my father and grandfather. And so anyway, I went into the corporate world. I did uh, make them happy and I trained and qualified with a, a global law firm. I think it's probably safe to say I was never going to be a great lawyer. Uh, I, I don't think I had the eye for detail. I, um, I, I was a litigator and I was very junior and I was working on a case and I remember seeing them wheel in about 30 lever arch files of all these documents, all these papers. This is pre-internet days. And I remember thinking, wow, some poor guy's going to have to read all of that. And then I realized that was me. I was the poor guy. So I, I resigned the next day and that was, that was it for me for for law but I, I went into the executive search business uh, and I eventually set up my own business and for a while I had a blast and it was fun there I was building teams and opening offices and but you know Beverly I think I felt over time like I was living someone else's life it was like I was playing a part you know rather than, mm. than, than living authentically and the more work I did on myself over time the more I realized that you know, I could go on doing this for the next 20 years, but this isn't what I was put on earth to do. And I'd studied some psychology and I had my own personal therapy. And, you know, there's this great TED article. Of course, now I can't remember who wrote it, but um, it talks about how we find our calling. And it says the calling is at the intersection of these three things. Doing something you're good at, feeling appreciated, and believing your work is making people's lives better and when those three things kind of come together that's our kind of wow it's our where we come alive so I found something that makes me come alive oh fantastic well it's great that you found it while you're young enough to change the career oh I love you Beverly I'm young enough I just <laughs> you're my new best friend <laughs> so how would you describe the work that you do today so uh, I think it probably described myself as a, a well-being expert, which is a bit bland because it could mean I'm doing, you know, pedicures or other stuff. But 
I think probably, you know, someone walks through my door with a sense that something in their life just isn't going well. And maybe it's sex, maybe it's work, maybe it's relationship related. And sometimes we define it easily. So a couple comes in and says, you know, Gavin, we're, we're, we're struggling. We've got a problem and we're struggling with our sex life. Or my wife drinks too much. Or someone comes in and says, I have anger issues. And then other times we don't really know. We just, we just know we're not having joy in our lives anymore. We don't quite know what. And so we sort of go on this, this therapeutic journey together. We, we navigate our way through the, the terrain of the psyche. So, you know, people leave with a sense of what's caused the issues, what the issues are, um, and a clearer sense of how to move forward. Um, so it's working both with with couples, with individuals. And as you said at the outset, I, I run a number of courses and workshops and retreats. So it's a, a mix of different things that, yeah, I think falls under that well-being umbrella. Fantastic. And I guess, you know, it's like everything, relationships, you have to work hard at them. And I'm not sure if you see more couples who have children because a lot of mothers spend more time with children and the husband feels left out or the husband might be a workaholic or vice versa. So do you have statistics? It's a great question and I think there are, I'm not sure I have st statistics per se, but there are definitely moments, pivotal moments that bring people into therapy, into couples therapy and you just touched upon one of the main ones. How our lives are turned upside down when we have kids and it's one of those moments where for the woman, very often her whole identity has changed. So, you know, women, and I'm generalizing because of course caregiver can be either, you know, man or woman, but let's be honest, it's typically the woman, the primary caregiver. And sometimes there's an identity crisis of, wait a minute, yesterday I was a corporate executive at wherever, now I'm a mum, and I'm supposed to know immediately how to transition. And so there are identity issues. and absolutely right you know for you know for the man what's that impact on on him um, and so that's one of the times and then there are other times when sometimes it's even before the kids we, we all go into that honeymoon period you know it's the eros phase where everything is wonderful and then that wears off and we wake up one day and we think wow who am i married to because we when we first get into relationship let's say you and i are in a relationship beverly and i only want you to see my good side so I'm going to keep that hidden from you as long as possible and you're going to do the same. And then one day, probably after a few years of marriage, I can't keep that up anymore. And you're going to think, wow, I didn't really know that about Gavin. And I'll think, well, I didn't really know that about Beverly. And we call that the power struggle phase. Right. How do we now begin to work on that? Do we work on it or do we just say we're going to... And sadly, a lot of couples get to that part and they say, you know what, I'm done, I'm out of here. So again, different phases, the, the kids leaving home, uh, leaving the nest. So I forgot your question, but different people, couples come to, 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 to counseling um, at various different stages. And, and there are certainly trends and patterns to when they come. I was just curious whether you see more people who have children. Are they a catalyst for couples therapy or the non-childless couples? Um, I, I see both. You see both because, again, for the non-childless couple, whether it's a choice or not a choice, um, 
how do we make sense of our lives? So we don't have children, either by choice or not, but what does that mean? There is a, you know, there's a sense of loss whether we choose to have children or we don't. There's always going to be a sense of something that we don't have. And then there's the joy of look at all the things we do have. So I see a complete mix of couples both with and without kids. And whether we do or don't have them, different sets of problems, but we still have to be in relation to another. We all have this primal fear of abandonment. We all are trying to be seen um, and to see our partners and what's that like in the bedroom, out of the bedroom. So, so for me, it's a mix, couples both with children and couples, couples without. Right. And I guess I'm sure there's lots of men who say there's no way I'm coming for therapy. Mm -hmm. It's the same with the woman. So would you be able to counsel a man or a woman by themselves for the guidance, how to improve their relationship? So you're right. It's usually the, um, it's usually the woman who contacts me first. Very often is dragging the husband into the therapy room. Uh, and the husbands are sometimes, of course not always, but are more um, reticent to express their feelings because the cultural norms that we men grew up with are, um, it's emasculating, we, we, we shouldn't show our feelings. Um, as a rule of thumb, the couple is my client and I work with the couple together. There are sometimes occasions when I will see either the man or um, or the woman, assuming it's a heterosexual relationship, doesn't have to be. I will see one of the couple separately, but not for ongoing work because it muddies the waters. It's always the couple is my client and it stays that way. Thank you. And look where we're living in Monaco and the Côte d'Azur. A lot of people just think of Monaco as being glamour and glitz, leading the high life. And with that comes, obviously, alcohol, drugs. Mm -hmm. So I know your, one of your areas of expertise is addiction. What do you do to help people with that? So I think you're right. I'm not sure that it's necessarily a problem that's, that's not that you're suggesting is, that's unique to Monaco, but absolutely. It's um, anywhere where um, there is the opportunity uh, to live life to the excess, uh, then there's the opportunity for, um, for addiction. So I guess um, I tend to think of addiction uh, in, in two different ways. Um, there's both the um, substance uh, abuse and then there are process addiction. So a substance addiction is I have an unhealthy relationship with drink or drugs and a process addiction is a behavior. So I'm addicted to shopping or gambling or sex. And this is quite controversial in the, in the addiction field uh, because there are still some people who think, well, you can't really be addicted to sex, for example. It's a, it's a natural drive, so it just means I have too much of a high sex drive, or, which is a, a topic for another day. But I, I work with individuals and uh, helping them uh, come to terms with the fact that they may have an unhealthy relationship with a substance or a behavior, and then through both individual and group work, helping them get through the addiction. Um, and that first stage is, you know, I use the word unhealthy relationship. It's quite interesting because sometimes you work with someone and you say, you know, Joe, I think what you're bringing me here is leaning towards making me believe that I think this is an addiction. And it's a light bulb moment for some people. 
that's so helpful I didn't have a label before and other people it's like they're gonna leave the therapy room and never come back why are you labeling me why are you pigeonholing me mm -hmm. so then I say well how about we just say you have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol there are negative consequences from what you're doing that are having an impact on your life on your relationships so it's you know every case is is different and it's about making sure I try and you know, understand that person's frame of reference. Fabulous. So you mentioned shopping as well. So can I be addicted to anything? Uh, again, controversial question because some therapists will say uh, yes and others will say no. I would say, broadly speaking, I'd say probably not. I think there's a difference between doing something excessively but not being addicted to it. So I, I don't know, I might excessively drink water all day but it's not gonna have the same effect. So if you think about what we're just, just saying just now about substances, alcohol, um, or shopping or sex, what all of those experiences have in common is they really make us feel good. And they actually activate the brain's reward center and they release this neurotransmitter called dopamine. And dopamine, what happens as a result of that is we get left with this really strong memory of, wow, that was a good experience. And it was so good, not only do I remember it, but I'm motivated to do it again and again. So, um, whereas I might just, like I say, I might enjoy something, you might enjoy shopping, um, but it may not have such a negative impact on your life. Right, so what causes addiction? Uh, there's, no, um, there's no single cause of addiction. So, what we tend to look at are risk factors. So there are certain things which we know will increase someone's risk for addiction. So for example, genetics, mental illness, children of addicts, and I forget the stat, it's something like eight or 10 times more likely to become addicted than children of non-addicts. So we have those kind of, I guess you call them biological factors. And then there's environment, home, family. If there was physical or mental abuse during childhood, that's a real sign those people are at a high risk for, for developing addiction. And, you know, I guess, Beverly, if you were to take one strand and, and put all those together, I would say that there is an intimacy disorder that underpins most addictions. So there's something in my life that is just so painful that actually rather than turning to people to regulate my emotions, I'm turning to the bottle or the casino or the shop or... And that's, you know, that for me is about intimacy and not being able to be vulnerable and connect. Great. So how do you work if someone comes to you with an addiction? So I think it depends on the awareness of the addiction and what the actual addiction is. So as I was just saying before, denial is a huge part of addiction. You know, and anyone that's, that's ever been in a relationship with with an addict will we'll see this, that you know, if we're addicts, we come up with all these cognitive distortions of, you know, I can handle my drink. I only drink at weekends, or I work hard, I deserve this, you know, or what my husband doesn't know won't hurt him. And so we, we, that could be so powerful, we never actually come out of that denial. So sometimes the first part of the work is really just Go back to my point earlier on just on definitions. Can I get someone to recognize 
there's something in my life here that isn't in balance. And therefore, have, once they recognize that, we can start to do some work. And with the behavioral addictions, we have a more kind of cognitive behavioral approach. So some CBT work, giving someone the practical tools. What happens when you get a craving? What happens when you want to act out? And then when someone's kind of got that in check, then we do some deep dive work into the, into the causes. If someone is, has a, an addiction to alcohol or to a substance, sometimes we collaborate with the doctor, the psychiatrist. Um, if it's um, extreme, then they might need to be hospitalized or you know, have a, a, a stronger intervention. But it's usually a, a mixture of the individual work, the one-to-one -one work, like what you and I are doing now. We're sitting down, we're chatting, helping someone process their, their trauma and group work because groups and there, you know, there aren't enough groups here in the Riviera. It's one of the things I feel so passionate about. In groups, we all work so well together. There are lots of studies that the brain responds much quicker in building new neural pathways in group settings. You know, friends can be really well-meaning and friends can say, well, I, it must be tough, I know what you're going through, but you really sit with a group of other addicts who have walked in your shoes and you've walked in theirs, the way and the, the extent to which that reduces the shame is huge. Right. So what advice can you give to a loved one who may have a family member suffering from addiction? Mm -hmm. I would say that, um, first I'd say to them this is tough and I would, I would empathize. It's not easy helping someone who, who has an addiction and there's no one size fits all. It might be easier if I say actually the thing not to do, which is what we all do, is in that situation, there's a tendency to control the addict and we make threats. If you don't do this, I'll walk out. And then of course we don't. And, and it's obvious the threat's not gonna follow through. And we have to recognize that the person who is suffering, they may not recognize they have a problem. They might fear the consequences, losing their job, going to prison. So I would say, Try not to yell, to make threats, to escalate the situation, and do your best to build trust and communicate. Help them, if you can, get through someone's door like myself. Get to a 12-step group and look after yourself first and foremost. Because what we tend to do, if I'm so busy living in a chaotic relationship because my loved one is an addict, I forget about my boundaries. I'm so busy trying to keep the kids happy, trying to keep you happy, that I've forgotten about myself. So, you know, it's like that thing on the airplanes, put your own oxygen mask on first. Yes. And do your best to support and help your loved one. Yes. Um, I know from when I mentioned about the glamour and glitz, people see me on social media and they think, wow, that's all Monaco and the Côte d'Azur is about. Mm -hmm. Because I know from experience you could be going to an event every night of the week. Yeah. And there's about three or four events every night of the week. So it's very hard, you know, when you first arrive. And, you know, is it certain personalities? Because I can go out and just drink water, especially if I'm working or really tired. But I know some people can't say no. So is it certain personality types that become addicted? Yeah, I think we can have, depending on those, those environmental and the biological factors, we can have a propensity to 
um, to drink to excess. And you know what you raise about the Riviera, it is interesting because there is this perception, you know, for those of us, you know, which many of your listeners I suspect are, we're expats. So, and the Riviera, as you said, it's seen as being so glamorous. So what are we all doing? We're all posting on social media. I do this. Here's the beautiful sunrise. Here's the yacht. Here's the beach. And yet, do I ever post, I just had a huge argument with a friend of mine, or we had really bad sex last night, and I thought I'd post that on social media. We don't. And there's this expectation that we should. I should look where we live. You know, it's one of the first things you said. Look at this beautiful place where we are. So we put these expectations on ourselves that we should be enjoying life to the full. And I'm a big fan of gratitude and of affirmations and gratitude journals. But you know what? Sometimes life just isn't good. We go through bad times and we have to be able to get in touch with the down days and the good days and accept that this is a beautiful place to live. But it doesn't mean I have to be happy all of the time. Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head as well because so many people live here but maybe their husbands and wives are working away a lot and they're stuck on their own. A lot of people tell me how lonely they are or yeah. many people won't admit to being lonely. So you can be living in a beautiful place but unless you look within and do the gratitude like you're saying, um, it's hard for someone to get to know themselves properly, you know, and find that true relationship with themselves. And that's why, you know, I'm a big fan of the, you know, you kind of invited me to speak at one of your ladies' lunches, and I think there's just, we're also frightened to let the mask off, you know, to let the, uh, someone see us. And when we do, we usually think, oh, that's so nice. Like, I don't have to pretend. And, you know, we all have to live you know, we go to work and we perform a role. Of course we do. There, there are social etiquettes, etc. But sometimes we've trapped ourselves that we think we, not, we have to not only be living the perfect life, but you need to know that I'm living the perfect life. And then I go to an event of yours and we give people permission in that confidential safe space. You can be vulnerable and you don't have to pretend for this hour or for these two hours that you're having the perfect life. And people just... You know, that's where connection happens. You know, and, and talking about addiction today, the antidote to addiction is connection. And when we connect with people, and um, that's the point when I begin to overcome my demons. Yes, um, and everybody loves that connection at my groups, and they love seeing you, and you've been like the fairy godmother waving a magic wand, and bringing everybody together and people open up more and they realize, wow, there is more to life if I just let off that mask yeah. and be truly myself. So, Gavin, are there limitations for working here on the Riviera in your nature of work? Well, I'd say probably the main one is, you know, it's a pertinent question given what we were just saying. For me, the main one is confidentiality and you must see this as well with the yeah. events that you do. People just want to know the first thing I say when I meet someone in the professional arena is everything you say here, it's confidential. And if I happen to, you know, bump into in the supermarket, you can come and say hello to me, it's fine. But I'm not going to come and say hello to you. And, the, you know, I have professional ethics. I choose to be a member of the British Association of Counseling Psychotherapists. And, you know, I do that for a reason, because there's ethical guidelines. And 
that's the main one that how do I know it's safe to to be vulnerable yeah and I know you're very highly qualified I've seen the long list of qualifications that you have so where can people find more information about yourself and what you do so I would say the easier thing to do is take a look at my website. My website is live, love, learn, all one word, live, love, learn dot global. Um, and feel free to uh, check me out, to send me an email, pick up the phone, call me. Uh, that's probably the best way to, to reach me and see more about what I do. Fantastic, because I know there's a few charlatans out there who will do a weekend course and advertise they're an expert in this, that or the other. but. You come with very high recommendations. And um, so, do you have an opportunity to offer something special for our listeners today if they mention this interview? Yes, of course, I would like to, because as I said at the start, Beverly, I'm, I'm really grateful to you for the opportunity to do this. And, and you were one of the first people I met, you know, when I moved here to the Riviera, and you were so generous in saying, you know, Gavin, who can I connect you with? Um, how can I help you and so if I can do something in return so have a look at my website I always have courses or workshops for both individuals and couples and if there's something that one of your listeners sees um, mention this interview and uh, you know and I'll happily offer them a 10% a discount on, on a course that they like or, or they'll just you know keep a look at there's always things happening great and I know you've been to America lately yeah are you open if someone listens to this interview, for example, and offers you to go and talk in different parts of the world? Would you be open for that? I, I love to travel. And I pick my travel carefully because there's only so much time I want to be away from clients kind of on an ongoing basis. But, um, but yes, as you said, I just came back from the States where I was doing some uh, recovery intensive work out there. So I'm always interested in connecting to other people in the field and that's how we always learn and, and how we grow. Yeah, thank you. I love the way you're continually doing courses with other experts and always topping up on your qualifications and knowledge. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming today and giving up your precious time. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity.